Number 662, as we mark that song and look forward to using that later in the lesson today. Certainly, isn't it interesting that some of the announcements made earlier remind us of some notable events occurring very, very shortly, to, uh, certainly in the future. Keep in mind, if you would, about that gospel meeting three weeks from today. It starts three weeks from today. Brother Steve Higginbotham be with us. He's the pulpit preacher for the Carnes Church of Christ just outside Knoxville, Tennessee. We've had him scheduled for this for, I'd say, six, seven years or so by now. And certainly looking forward to him being with us. I think he preaches some on GBN, and you may know him in some other arenas. And so we're delighted he has cleared his calendar and will be with us in three weeks. Also keep in mind that the schedule of services that day will be a little unusual. Our services at 9.30 and 10.30 as usual, and then an afternoon service at 2 o'clock. And that, of course, will follow a, a, a midday fellowship, if you please, a dinner on the ground after the morning service that day. And then there will be no evening service that night at 5.30. So you might want to keep that little unusual feature of our schedule certainly in mind. Homosexuality in the Bible. As I made preparation for this lesson, I did so with uh, a certain goal, a certain set of ideas in mind, because I wanted the Word of God to be etched very strongly in all of our hearts. We're battling in some hard times currently, and we all know this. And so there's nothing I'm going to say that's going to be a new matter in that regard. But it is true that the constant battle is seemingly endless, and it's very strong. And it is in such a way that if you and I aren't careful, we could ultimately risk our home in heaven over this subject. Now, not as though we would ever be guilty of it, but as we'll learn near the close of the lesson, it could be a sufficient problem that we may make an error that the Word of God is going to tell us about as we get far along in the lesson today. But certainly the introduction to the lesson I have tried to summarize very quickly and very briefly in the following ways. The Bible is very clear on this subject. It is not in any way that it's ambiguous or unclear. It's very much direct and to the point. But as you might notice about the middle of that slide, there is an attitude that is typically set forth in regard to Christians when it comes to this subject. You know, isn't it true that in regard to the way Christians look at things, nobody, it seems, will ever challenge you and I on the way we look at a thief. We love the thief, but we hate what he does. And nobody will ever challenge us on the character of, say, adultery. We hate adultery, but we love the adulterer. But the very moment that homosexuality is raised in a conversation, and the very moment that that topic appears, if a Christian opposes it, even kindly, or if a Christian utters words of opposition to it, even done so in an arena of propriety and tactfulness, you will immediately be labeled as a hater, and you will immediately be labeled as one who is intolerant and one who does not believe in love. And that has become the modern way in which our world looks upon the subject. And therefore, you and I as Christians need to be reinforced. We need to know exactly where we stand and why we stand there. Because often this pressure the world is going to face, and it's going to put upon you and me, will be a pressure that will be so strong and so great that we'll get run over if we aren't careful. For that reason, let's close that slide and notice... Several topics, several ideas. 
I've tried to divide the lesson into several points. We'll just look at them one at a time. The first thing, and this is what was in the reading a moment ago, but one of the first things that must be clearly kept in our heart is that homosexuality is just wrong. It just plain is sinful and wrong. Could I direct your attention back to 1 Corinthians 6? That was the reading that Brother Mike read just a moment ago. In verse number 9, the text says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, Paul makes note of this rhetorical question. As he writes to this church in Corinth, he points out, You do know, right, that these behaviors that are unrighteous, those people will not go to heaven. They won't. Paul, can you list some of the things you have in mind? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. It would appear that nine particular behaviors are listed. I would simply ask you to note the following. I'm going to select two of those nine because those are the primary ones for the lesson today. But as you read through the King James Version, now your particular translation may be slightly different, I certainly confess. But the second to the last one in verse number nine in the King James is effeminate. Well, you and I might wonder, so what exactly does the word effeminate mean? Note the definition with me, please. Literally, it has the thought of a catamite, generally relating to softness. It came to be descriptive of a male who submits his body to unnatural lewdness. In other words, the passive individual participating in homosexuality. Let me say that again the passive participant in homosexuality. What Paul is describing is a person engaging in homosexual activity. Now, the next one in the list, the one that's listed as abusers of themselves with mankind, that word literally carries the following thought. It's a different word in Greek. But you'll notice that it literally has recourse to one who lies with a male in the same way that you would lie with a female. Again, a homosexual, this time apparently the more aggressive side of it. May I suggest both participants in homosexuality have been included in this list of nine. And again, they were labeled as unrighteous, just as much as the other seven elements of the list. You'll notice, in fact, if you're reading in other translations, I've particularly called to your attention both the New King James Version and the English Standard, both actually use the word homosexual as a part of this list for those words. We clearly then know what it is that's under description. We aren't left to wonder or doubt about it, but again, please note with me, this is labeled as wrong. Let's close that slide like this. May I suggest to you, it's not as if it were merely wrong in Corinth. It had always been wrong. Hear me, would you? It had always been wrong from the time of Genesis chapter 1 onward. It's not as if it was a new development. And it's not as if God had changed His mind in some way relative to it. It had been wrong. We have evidence of that in Genesis 19. There the scene is a very familiar one to us. 
Sodom and Gomorrah had, of course, behaved in such a way. Those angelic visitors came in an effort to rescue Lot. Lot lingered. He tarried, he and his family. But as a part of that event, you remember that the men of the city came and knocked on Lot's door and said, Bring out the men that we may know them. They weren't interested in having coffee with them. That word know is the same one that had appeared in Genesis 4 verse 1 where it says Eve knew Adam, her husband. And later on in Luke chapter 1, isn't it true that when the angel told Mary, you're going to bring forth a son, and she said, how can this be? I have never known a man. The word know is being used in regard to sexuality. It's being used in regard to an intercourse, if you please. You'll notice it had been wrong in the days of Genesis 19. God, of course, rained fire and brimstone and forever destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah over those kinds of activities. But may I suggest to you as you close that slide with me that we have noted it had been wrong early in Genesis. It was still wrong in Paul's day. Let's transition to the next thought, though. Deception. So having solidified in our heart the fact that God decrees homosexuality is wrong, may I suggest, and you know it well with me, that there's a number of deceptions that are often mentioned in relation to homosexuality. Let's look at the first one. First of all, there are many of our day who would be quick to say, but don't you realize that homosexuality is somewhat natural? These two people love each other. Are we against love? Shouldn't we approve? Shouldn't we, in fact, give our approval to that which they do? How can you say this is unnatural? Well, it is in that connection, might I invite you to note the following. Although that there is an argument, or at least that there's a perspective that some may have concerning that matter, would you turn with me to Romans chapter 1? In our effort to allow the Word of God to, again, be the deciding matter on this point, it is not our interest, nor has it ever been, to simply speak our opinion. I'd like to begin reading in Romans chapter 1, verse number 26. In discussing these features of the Gentile world and some of the things of which they were guilty, the inspired writer says, "...for this cause God gave them up unto vile affections." For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. It's a bit difficult to imagine the Holy Spirit making it any plainer than that. There is a natural use, and the women were leaving this, so we have a reference to lesbianism. Paul wrote and said, that's not appropriate, it's not right. And then in the next verse, he affirmed there were men who, again, as homosexuals, verse 27, these were leaving the natural use of the woman, burning in their lust one toward another. And verse 27 says they were doing what was unseemly. May we all point out then and note that homosexuality is unnatural. It's unnatural. You and I could easily understand that, of course, from other perspectives as well. We know the basic character of anatomy. 
the features of male versus female helps us appreciate that homosexuality is a sentence of death. The human family cannot procreate if homosexuality is simply and only the order of the day. Humans will cease to be. We know that a woman with a woman and a man with a man cannot procreate. They can't. Isn't it interesting that in that light, today it's one of the most foolish arguments that is ever made on this subject is to claim it's natural. Even anatomy, biology, easily testifies it's not natural. One final deception on that slide is this one. We are often told, in fact, it's paraded in a rather notable way, look, isn't this a choice? It's their right to live that way, isn't it? After all, God makes us with the capability of free moral agency. You and I then often hear the fact, and those who supposedly come out, and they say, this is who I am. This is who we are. And you and I are expected to applaud it, to approve it, to condone it, to lift up hands of encouragement with respect to it. We have had presidents of our land who have picked up the telephone and called athletes who have come out and made recognition of the fact. And certainly we have had other approaches that cause our soul to recoil in virtual disbelief. May I again say, is it a matter of choice? Let me ask you this. If those who believe God made me this way, what does the Bible say about this? Did God make some people as homosexual and others as heterosexual? Can this be relayed then to Him? Let's turn to James chapter 1. In verses 13 and following of that chapter, we have this rather unforgettable statement. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. We learn several things, and among them are these. First, God does not exist as the force behind evil. He doesn't make evil. He doesn't make some people that way because, note this logic, if God is going to judge some people and send them to hell for being homosexual and He made them that way and they can't help it, then you could indict God for being unfair. You could indict Him for creating people in one way and they have nothing they can do to help it and yet He's going to condemn them for it. God is not unjust. God did not make them as homosexual. They have chosen it for themselves. That character of choice is something you and I must keep in mind. And I realize that there are those who will say, I have been made this way and I can't help it. That's not so. That is not true. Homosexuality, just like the other members of this list, pick out some of the other ones in passing. Fornication. Does God make a fornicator and that person can do nothing about it? Does God make an extortioner and that person can do nothing about it? Well, you and I realize that's a foolish way of looking at it. Every one of these are a matter of individual choice on the part of the human being. Let's look at number four. 
the fourth point that's worthy of consideration. And this one ties in rather strongly to the one we just now made. Again, it's not unusual to hear appreciation to the effect that I am made this way and I can't change. That isn't so. With all the love and the consideration and kindness in our heart, that just simply is not so. Could I invite you to note again the text that was just read at our hearing a moment ago? 1 Corinthians 6. I read verses 9 and 10. And in that list were included these homosexuals. Let me now continue in verse 11. And such were some of you. Did you note the tense of the verb? In other words, in there in the church at Corinth, in times past, there had been some thieves, there had been some drunkards, there had been some adulterers and fornicators, and there had been some homosexuals. But he says that's what you were. You are not that way now. The tense of the verb is very significant in that passage. They had been this, but now notice how verse 11 continues onward. It says, But now you are justified in the name of the Lord. You are in the Spirit of the Lord. You are washed and you're sanctified. In other words, they'd been forgiven of this sin. They were no longer living as homosexuals. For that reason, you may notice on this slide, I have even put in italics the wonderful thrust of verse 11. You're washed. I wonder how that happened. In what way were these homosexuals washed from the guilt of that sin? We aren't left to wonder. In Revelation 1 verse number 5, writing on the Isle of Patmos, John, the aged apostle, said, It is the blood of Christ that washes us from our sins in His own blood. And as if that wasn't enough, in Acts twenty-two sixteen, 16, Ananias told these unforgettable words to Paul, and now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. May I suggest, Paul was baptized. And in so doing, the previous sins of his life were washed away. These homosexuals, they finally obeyed the gospel. They came to a point in which they received the blessed grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in so doing, they were forgiven of that sin. For that reason, notice on the slide, they applied the wonderful blood of Christ to their life. You may appreciate then our discussion so far has painted a rather dramatic picture of the behavior and the response of the Corinthian church to that, to that activity. Let's come to number five, the one I've entitled love. Now this one's very keen. This one's very, very acute. I mentioned it a bit earlier in the lesson, and it certainly seems appropriate to do so again, because quite often, that is one of the arguments made. Again, in conversation, as you and I, or perhaps a person who is a Christian, may offer some resistance to homosexual behavior, and the person who supports it is almost flabbergasted and says, How can you oppose love? Those two men love each other. Shouldn't they be allowed to have that kind of relationship if that's what makes them happy? Shouldn't the world need more love? Well, you notice then, our response to that needs to be consistent with the Word of God. I've tried to ask your appreciation of it in ways like this. One more time, I would invite 
you and I to think about that in connection to some of the other behaviors in this list. Don't you find it terribly intriguing that that same kind of approach is not used about any of the other ones as far as I know? And yet the first ones in the list were these, fornicators. Well, don't you see that the same kind of reasoning that's used then by many in regard to homosexuality looks like it could be used here. Here's a young boy and a young girl. They're not married, but they love each other. Shouldn't we endorse that? Shouldn't we approve it? They love each other too. Shouldn't we lift up their hands in approval? Or here's a man having an affair. Oh, he's married to another woman, but he loves his mistress. He loves this woman. Shouldn't we approve this too? Do you see the idea? We don't ever argue those ways, but suddenly when it comes to homosexuality, these men love each other. These women love each other. Who are we to oppose it? When all the while we'll oppose adultery and we'll oppose fornication, may I suggest to you in the interest of consistency... And more than anything else, in the interest of being faithful to God, you and I ought to think about this. What does God say about this attribute, this behavior of love? First of all, you and I know God condemns what that young boy and girl were doing. They are not allowed to engage in activity like that until they're married. God says that's wrong. I don't care how much infatuation they have. I don't even care if they have a degree of love one for another. God says it's wrong. And that man that has a mistress on the side, I don't care how infatuated he may be with her. He's married to another woman, and God says what he's doing with that mistress will never be right. And he'll lose his soul over it if he don't make it right. In the same way here, It doesn't matter how these two men or women may feel about one another. What they're doing, God does not approve it. May I suggest that in 1 Corinthians 13, you and I have the formal God-given definition of love. Without reading all of it, could I invite you to note at least part of it? When you and I want to know what love is and how it behaves, this is God's definition. Beginning in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 13, Charity, or love, suffereth long, and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth." That's strong language. Love, as God identifies it, and as it's based on truth, it will rejoice in truth. It will never, ever rejoice in wickedness. And yet we've already learned that this homosexual behavior is unrighteous. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. So that's not true love. It's not love as it it emanates from heaven. Perhaps you can also appreciate this. When you and I have appreciated what we said earlier in the lesson, that this has always been something upon which God frowned. Let's revisit another couple of Old Testament passages. I mentioned earlier in the patriarchal age, that time of Abraham and following, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the fate that they experienced. Let's go forward to the book of Leviticus. 
Now this is now in the law of Moses. So we have now transitioned to the next law beneath which the human family has ever lived. In Leviticus chapter 18, we encounter the following wording. This is the instruction that God gave to His people, the people of Israel. Leviticus 18, verse number 22. Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is abomination. Now those are not my words. That's verbatim read from Leviticus 18. God told His people among the behaviors that you must never engage in. This is one of them. Men, you don't lie with a man the same way you'd lie with a woman. Why? It's abomination. That word means it's something that God loathes. It is an extreme hatred. He does not appreciate or approve that kind of behavior. Go two chapters forward. Leviticus chapter 20 this time. May I invite your attention to verse 13. If a man also lie with mankind as he lieth with a woman... Both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. There were a number of conducts or behaviors in the Old Testament which were punishable by decree of God with death. Homosexuality was one of them. Now I might say so was fornication, so was adultery, so was kidnapping, and so many others. But the point is, this kind of behavior was something that God testified it is not to be maintained. It is not to be approved. It is not to be looked upon in some kind of trivial fashion. For that reason, let's close that slide like this. We've so far learned five things, five biblical truths about this. Number six. This one brings us to appreciate something rather unique about it. The uniqueness that I wished for you and me to consider was the pressure that is often exerted upon Christians as a result of it. Could I perhaps phrase it as I have at the top? Aren't you a bit impressed that in this list, in 1 Corinthians 6, homosexuality is just listed along with a bunch of others. It's not singled out. It is not even the first one in the list. It's just about the middle. And it's right there alongside drunkenness and idolatry, fortication, extortion, and all these others. It's not singled out. It is wrong just like all the others are. But yet there's something very unique about it, given our current culture. You and I are not pressured over drunkenness. If you, in fact, approach someone who is given to be an alcoholic and you resist them or you oppose them or you encourage them to change, likely nothing is really going to happen. They may hear you. Even if they don't, they won't get upset with you. If you approach someone who is known for being a thief and you encourage them to change and you encourage them to accept a new way of life, they likely will have very little to say. They may, they may not heed your advice. But it isn't the same. If there's a homosexual and you urge them, you know, you really need to change because God doesn't like this. You're not going to go to heaven this way. Suddenly, they will be defensive most of the time. We have a nation of individuals who not only wish to parade or encourage that, but they become militant to anyone who dare oppose it. 
That's what I meant by the uniqueness attached to this one. And so on that slide, I'd like to at least offer you this. Don't you find it remarkable to consider the effectiveness with which the devil has been able to use homosexuality? You know, a hundred years ago, this was portrayed as wrong, and it was generally believed to be wrong. In fact, up until even as late as 1951, the Diagnostic Manual for Mental Disorders listed homosexuality as a mental disorder. That's the way it was viewed. That's the way it was appreciated, partly because of the way the Bible describes it. But obviously, under pressure from society and from those who wish to approve it, that has long since been removed from the Diagnostic Manual now. And even our Supreme Court recently used that argument in June of 2015 to uphold Obergefell versus Hodges and legalize same-sex marriage in our country. The pressure is becoming intense. And unless things change, it certainly seems as if it's this topic, it's this subject that will be the one through whom Christians will lose the freedom we have enjoyed to this point. If things continue along this way, it certainly is only a matter of time before individuals who speak against it, be they preachers or otherwise, will be taken to jail. Let's face it, it's just a matter of time if things continue along this pathway. May I again say that that makes this one a bit unique, and the devil has used it masterfully to suit his ends. Number seven, here comes the warning that I wished for each of us to note. And this is the great danger. You might want to be turning to Romans chapter 1, for we shall have something to say about that chapter in just a moment. But as I make a prayer first, or at least a preparation for that, let me begin it like this. To those who know the Word of God, it is certainly not likely that there's going to be a mass movement toward homosexuality. It is just not likely there's going to be a sudden increase in those who want to serve Christ and yet who still want to live as a homosexual. That's just not likely going to happen. The Bible is too plain. It's too direct. But the great danger is this. What about indirect approval? The common appreciation of our land seems to be this. Are you aware of the fact that those who are practicing homosexuals in terms of number are less than 1% of our population. Less than 1%. That means over 99% are heterosexuals. And yet, based on the amount of media attention, based on the amount of progressive movement, you would think that they're numbering 50% or more, but it, it isn't even close to that. What I would offer you this, though, the typical approach of the world is this. Well, I'm not a homosexual, and I don't choose to live that way, but if that's the way they want to live, well, that's fine with me. There's the danger. There's the danger that will cause you and me to lose our soul. Let me invite you to read Romans 1, verse 32. Now, without reading the fullness of that chapter, I know that's the last verse. But again, just to preface what's there, just prior to that, Paul has listed by inspiration a host of behaviors that are not pleasing to God. To call your attention to verses 29 and 30, you notice there's murder, there's malignity, there's haters of God, those who are disobedient to parents. You get the idea. But are you aware of the fact that also in that list are homosexuals? 
With that in mind, verse 32 now says this, "...who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but consent with them that do them." And the last part of that's the frightening part. Though you and I may never be a homosexual, that verse says, and I have asked you to appreciate the Greek thrust, that word to consent with, the King James reads it, have pleasure in. That word literally means to approve, to consent, to applaud. If I could draw your attention to another place of the Bible where that same word is used, I think the idea will be clear. In Acts 22, verse number 20, that same Greek word appears, and in that connection, the meaning is evident. Verse number 20 of that chapter reads, And when the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by and consenting unto his death, and kept the raiment of them that slew him. Paul says, Even though I didn't throw the rocks and stone Stephen, I stood by and held the clothes, and I consented to it. That's the same thing here. You and I may never actually be a practicing homosexual, but if we consent to it, stand by and do nothing, but we approve their right to do it, God says we're as guilty as they are. That's what this verse teaches. That's why we've got to be on guard. And I realize that the newer generation, the younger generation, they're growing up in a time very different than most of us in the sound of my voice. When you and I were in school, and even before, it was generally understood that this was not right. But the modern culture and society, our youngsters are inundated with this. It is testified before them left and right that this is just a choice. They have their right to live that way just like you choose not to. We mustn't agree with that. In that regard, may I say that quite frankly, the most loving thing that a Christian can do is tactfully and kindly offer words of resistance so that they might hopefully come to the truth and obey it and so end up going to heaven because it's for sure they will not be able to in that state. Let's close the lesson with point number eight. A very brief point, but it's just a reminder. A reminder to each of us that we must be strong in the truth. We mustn't let culture and society gauge our viewpoint on this or any other topic, really. We have to appreciate that, just as was said in Ephesians 6, verses 10 and following. Stand fast! You and I as Christians have to cling tenaciously to the truth of God, appreciating it and loving it and holding to it unlike anything else. And so these verses lead us to notice didn't Paul tell Timothy to be strong in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? 2 Timothy 2 verse 1. You and I are going to be strong when we cling to the Bible. And this kind of behavior, as much as we love the individuals and we want them to be saved, we know it's not possible practicing that which they're choosing to practice. And therefore, just as those in Corinth, they were washed... They were sanctified and they were justified by obeying the gospel. That same thing can happen today to those who currently are homosexuals. As you and I close this lesson then, may I offer one final word of wisdom based on the Word of God. 
Our land, you and I know, is certainly battling this and battling it in a rather dramatic way. It's a high-profile topic. May we be urgent in prayer for this topic especially, praying that we as a population of people, a country of people, will have leaders who will come to appreciate that the soundness and wisdom and the thing that's right is to always lift high the banner of what God says. This very morning, you and I are of greatest interest in what God says. We love the Word of the Lord. And so by way of invitation, let me just simply say that if I could summarize those eight points very briefly, homosexuality is wrong. And although much deception is often mentioned in connection to it, that doesn't change the fact, as you can again easily remember, that they can change. Again, they may say they can't, but you and I know differently. Love, as the Bible describes it, leads you and I to 1 Corinthians 13, which is a very different scenario. Needless to say, the unique pressure that comes with that leads us to understand the final two thoughts. We must be strong in the faith, strong in the truth. May I say, if you're not a faithful New Testament Christian, you need the strength of Jesus to help fortify you against this topic as well as so many others. And therefore, if you have never become a Christian, why not today? Believe in Jesus, won't you? It is He who died at Calvary. It is He who, sinless though He was, shed His blood that you might be, in fact, cleansed from your sin. You need to repent of your sins and confess His name and be baptized. If you have become a Christian, but maybe you've never even thought of living as a homosexual, but your mind really hasn't been forceful in opposing it. Well, maybe in light of our lesson today, we each understand that the Christian life is one where we must war a good warfare, 1 Timothy 6 verse 12, and that kind of warfare will demand that we oppose this and all other sins. Today, if you need the strength of God, why not ask for brethren here to pray for you? If you'd like to confess error, why not repent of it, confess it, and invite us to pray to God for you? If we could be of assistance to you today in any of these ways, won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?